So tonight's reading is from Acts, uh, chapter 4, starting at verse 32. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them all that there were no needy persons among them. From time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, sold a field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. Now, a man named Ananias, together with his wife Sapphira, also sold a piece of property. With his wife's full knowledge, he kept back part of the money for himself, but brought the rest and put it at the apostles' feet. Then Peter said, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You have not lied just to human beings, but to God. When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died, and great fear seized all who heard what had happened. Then some young men came forward, wrapped up his body, and carried him out and buried him. About three hours later, his wife came in, not knowing what had happened. Peter asked her, "'Tell me, is this the price you and Ananias got for the land?' "'Yes,' she said, "'that is the price.' Peter said to her, how could you conspire to test the spirit of the Lord? Listen, the feet of the men who buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out also. At that moment, she fell down at his feet and died. Then the young men came in and finding her dead, carried her out and buried her beside her husband. Great fear seized the whole church and all who heard about these events. This is the word of the Lord. Uh, thanks, Ben. I think we've got a little video to start us off. Small on the endless 
probably enough. <laughs> Tempting to watch it for the uh, rest of church, isn't it? Uh, it's a classic from my childhood, perhaps from yours as well. Uh, I showed it this morning, and of course, all the kids are too young for it, but most of their parents remembered it. Uh, it's a classic from 1994. Uh, I've heard it called the greatest animated movie of all time. Maybe, big call, The Lion King. Uh, that's the opening scene where we meet Mufasa, the king, and his peaceful, happy kingdom, the Pride Lands. All the animals live together in the circle of life, and uh, we see there the baby cub, Mufasa's son, Simba, who's destined to be the next Lion King. Uh, imagine for a moment you're an animal in that kingdom. Maybe you're an elephant, maybe a gazelle, hyena. Yeah. Not so good for you. Um, maybe some of us are flamingos. Uh, life is good. Nature is in harmony. You're happy. There's lots of food and water. It's a peaceful and prosperous kingdom. Uh, but as you know, if you've seen The Lion King, Mufasa has an evil brother, Scar. Uh, spoilers. <laughs> when Scar betrays Mufasa and threatens Simba's life, it's not just Simba at risk. The whole Pride Land is under threat. The peace and prosperity of all the animals is thrown into jeopardy. Sometimes the most dangerous enemies are not out there but within. Our passage from the Bible today as we continue through Acts, and particularly as we've read about Ananias and Sapphira, it raises lots of questions for us, and we're going to come to that a little later. But firstly, like in The Lion King, it begins with a beautiful community, and then we see a threat to that community. This is the earliest Christian community after Jesus we're reading about here, the very first generation of believers. So keep chapter 4, verse 32 to 35 open in front of you. Let's see what this beautiful community is like. Firstly, in verse 32, it says, All the believers were one in heart and mind. Uh, they're united. I think of that person you always get on so well with, the kind of person that you never seem to clash with. The conversation just comes easily. Well, the amazing thing about the, Christian, the, the very first Christians is that they all got on well together. They don't fight or argue. They don't hurt or demean each other. They care for each other. It's such an attractive witness. They do this because they all believe in Jesus and God's Spirit is in them. When we believe in Jesus, God's Spirit fills us, unites us to other Christians. We're on the same team. Are there other Christians at your work or your uni? Well, they too share the same Spirit. We're on the same team. And in fact, they care so much for each other here that they even give money to one another. They don't say, this is mine, about their own possessions and hold on to them. Sometimes they even sell their land or their house and give the money to be shared with those in need. If the great Australian dream is to own your own home, then uh, this idea really challenges some of our cultural idols, doesn't it? Why on earth would you give up the very thing we all want? Well, they don't have to do this. No one's forcing them, but they want to. Because God has been generous to them. They've received a far better gift from God, 
and so they can freely give this up. Now, this sort of uh, generosity wasn't completely unheard of in the ancient world. Uh, the, the Greek culture uh, had an ideal that back in the golden age, the kind of mythological past where, where all the heroes lived, right? They, they thought that back then there was no private property. Everything was just shared in common. Everyone lived in harmony. But it was kind of more of an ideal, right? I, I'm not aware of it ever being the actual reality. And even today, I think we have a similar ideal. Uh, as I ride to work along the upfield bike path, I often see posters urging me to fight against capitalism or to attend the socialist conference coming up. Uh, these days, we tend to look forward for a golden age, not back, right? When we imagine it kind of all being good. But there are some similar ideals in the air, aren't there? Sharing resources to the benefit of all. But again, it's, it's a bit more idealistic than reality. This early Christian community is a bit different, though. It's not just an early form of communism. There's a few really important differences. Uh, firstly, it's entirely voluntary. Uh, there's no government, there's no compulsion to give up property or money. No, there's no government making this happen. No one's being forced to give up their possessions. But people are doing this voluntarily for the sake of others. Uh, secondly, there's no centralised ownership or control of production like you would see in communism. Uh, the apostles, as the leaders, they're responsible for distributing what's given, um, although we're going to see that that changes in the next chapter. But they don't exert control over who can have or do what. This is a voluntary community of trust and, and genuine love and care. People are making big sacrifices for the sake of others and for the sake of the community. They've experienced God's grace to them. They know how generous God has been to them. And that experience overflows into generosity to others. It overflows to such an extent that we're told there are now no needy people among them. Now, if you cast your mind back... According to the law given to Moses back early in the Old Testament, uh, this was God's intention for Israel from the very beginning. As he brought them out of slavery in Egypt, he said he was giving them a land so bountiful, so plentiful, that there was no reason for anyone to be in need. There was more than enough for everyone. Uh, but that was never quite the reality in Israel. It never really came to be. But now these first believers in Jesus have experienced God's grace to them and, and it's overflowing in generosity to such an extent that there is no poverty in their community. God's grace to them also overflows in another way. It overflows in witness to Jesus. They are telling people that Jesus has died on the cross, that they've seen him risen from the dead and that he is now uh, the Lord of all people and, in fact, all nations and all creation. When we experience God's grace in our lives, when we believe the gospel, two things happen. We're, we're moved to show grace and kindness to others, and we're moved to tell others about the grace of God that's changed our lives. And when that begins to happen on a large scale, lots of people experiencing God's grace altogether, like we see here early in Acts, 
It's a compelling witness. It's a beautiful, attractive community. Many come to believe and join this community. Uh, One man is singled out in verse 36 as a great example of this behavior. Uh, Joseph sells a field that he owns and he brings the money to the apostles to share with those in need. Uh, Now, a little kind of tangent here for the eagle-eyed. You might be a bit surprised when you think about this. Joseph is a Levite. If you think about what you remember about Levites, one of the 12 tribes in the Old Testament who were designated to be priests serving in the temple. And according to the law, they weren't given land in the promised land. They didn't own land. They were responsible for serving at the temple. Uh, But first century Israel, 2,000 years ago, is a far cry Uh, far from that ideal of what God set up originally in the law. And so we see this Levite at least did own land, uh, which he sells for the sake of others. Joseph also gets a nickname. Uh, Now, if he was Australian, of course, we'd call him Joey, and that'd be easy. Uh, But first century Christians are a little more creative. They call him Barnabas, son of encouragement. Now, of course, the commentators will tell you, well, that means he was really encouraging. But again, probably not many of the commentators are Australian. Because if they were Australian, it would probably mean he was really stingy uh, and not very encouraging. But he wasn't. So uh, let's assume he is encouraging. Actually, Barnabas becomes very important later in Acts, quite a significant figure. And and we do see him be very encouraging. Uh, You'll have to read on to to learn more about Barnabas. Uh, As it turns out, though, not everyone is like Barnabas. We also meet Ananias and Sapphira, who become a threat to this beautiful community. Like Barnabas, they too sell some property. Uh, They're much more sneaky with the money. They pretend to bring it all to the apostles. They pretend they're giving everything to help those in need. And in reality, they're keeping some of it for themselves. In fact, the language is strong enough to suggest they've embezzled funds. They've held back on money that was pledged. And then they lie about it. They pretend to be more generous than they really are. I wonder why they're doing this. Peter makes it pretty clear in verse 4 that they're not under compulsion to give. Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? This is their money to do with as they see fit. But they're trying to deceive the community. They know that being generous is a good thing to do and they want to turn this good work into something for their own advantage. They want the status and respect of being generous. We gave a whole house, a whole property without actually being as generous. They're trying to exploit, I think, the trust and the generosity of this beautiful community for their own gain to make themselves look good. They're they're lying. They're lying to the community. In fact, they're lying to the Holy Spirit, uh, the one who unites and fills and has gathered this beautiful community. But God sees. God knows when we're trying to hide things from him. Sometimes we can deceive others. We can't deceive him. He's not impressed by our fake generosity. And he won't tolerate the impact that this sin threatens to have on this fledgling Christian community. In the same way that Scar's treachery throws the whole of the Pride Lands into disaster, 
So deceit here threatens disaster for this trusting community. Because what happens if people start lying? Well, it means you can't trust them. And if you can't trust others, uh, then it's much harder to love them. Uh, we'll probably be unwilling to make costly sacrifices to help them. Because we're worried that the gift might be abused or squandered or that people's situation isn't really as they're making out. Everything that's so awesome about this beautiful community will be corrupted if lying and deception go unchecked. So Peter confronts Ananias about what he's done. Uh, Verse 3, Ananias, how is it that Satan has so filled your heart that you have lied to the Holy Spirit and have kept for yourself some of the money you received for the land? Didn't it belong to you before it was sold? And after it was sold, wasn't the money at your disposal? What made you think of doing such a thing? You've not lied just to human beings, but to God. What happens next is both shocking and confusing, if we're honest. Verse 5 simply says, When Ananias heard this, he fell down and died. Just like that. Seems pretty clear that God has struck him down because of what he'd done. And then we hear that the same thing happens to Sapphira. She too gets the opportunity to answer for herself uh, in a culture in which women's destiny was often governed by their husbands. It's kind of striking that she too is questioned and given the chance to tell the truth. But she too lies, she tries to keep the deception going. Uh, and then she too falls and dies. Uh, it can feel unsettling when God acts so swiftly and severely in judgment. I wonder what questions this raises for you. Uh, it raises questions for me. I'm going to give you a moment or two now to talk with the person next to you. Uh, just turn to them. What, what questions does this passage raise for you? If you had the chance to ask God, what's, what's going on there in Acts 5? Uh, what, what would you want to know? Take a moment to chat and then I'll ask a few uh, people to report back. Okay, I'll, uh, I'll pause you there. You might like to continue those conversations after the service.
You can keep discussing those uh, good questions over dinner, perhaps, or, or after church. Uh, what questions does it raise for you? Anyone like to share some of the questions that came up in your conversation? What about repentance and redemption? Is there an opportunity here to say sorry and, and, and repent? Yeah. Yep. Amy? What about all the other terrible stuff that the church has done? Where was all this mercy? Yeah. What about all the other terrible stuff? Yeah. Where was the, where was the response? Other questions? Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks, Jeremy. Yeah. Yeah. I think he got called Satan on that occasion too. Yeah. Yeah. It does seem very harsh compared to other things that go on, even in the Bible, let alone afterwards. Yep. <laughs> How did Peter know? How did Peter know? Yeah. Yep. Good question. Yeah, good question, Anne. Yep. <laughs> I'm not going to pretend I can answer all these questions now, even if I did have the time. Yeah, Rosie? Yeah, yeah. What, if, what about if I lie? Yeah. Did this stop people lying? <laughs> of deterrence. Yeah, yeah. Good question. Yeah. Anyone else? That's lots of good questions. Yeah. Uh, one other question I heard during the week was, why isn't Sapphira told that her husband has died before they bury him? <laughs> yeah. Just, just loitering with intent, yeah. Um, there's lots of good questions here, and I think it's important to be honest with passages like this, that, that sometimes they raise questions that, that there are no simple answers to. Um, as I said, I, I, can't, I couldn't answer these questions, all of them, even if I did have the time. Um, part of the challenge, especially with this passage, is that it is just quite a sparse story. We're not given all the details, I don't think. And sometimes uh, God does things that don't sit well with our framework and I guess if you're God you're allowed to do that um, so yeah I guess I do encourage you to keep talking about them but um, let me say a couple of things to help us as we wrestle with a passage like this um, firstly uh, we should recognize this is a unique moment in the story of God's people uh, up till now uh, the early church has been peaceful united joyful proclaiming the gospel in the power of the Spirit. Uh, and now we see it threatened by internal sin for the first time. It's had external pressure a bit up till now, but this is internal. And so the, the response really matters. It's going to set a precedent, whatever happens. It's so important when you're building community with, with trust and love and vulnerability, and when people are making costly sacrifices for one another, it's so important that that trust isn't abused or, or manipulated for selfish gain. 
Uh, we've seen recently how devastating it is when uh, church leaders turn a blind eye to sin or allow abuse to, to continue without stopping it. As awful as the sexual abuse of children is, and it is, the damage has been compounded by uh, the inaction or disbelief of church leaders uh, when we fail to acknowledge that abuse or prevent it from continuing. Uh, and we can all think of stories, and the, the Royal Commission brought so much of that to light. This passage ought to be a warning to us that, that healthy boundaries are needed to protect a healthy community. Uh, it's, it's part of the reason that we need to uphold safe ministry practices in our church for the benefit of all in our community. Uh, the second thing I want to say is that this story shows us that just like in the Old Testament, so in the New Testament, God is still holy. He still wants his people to be free from sin, full of love and trust. Now, I recognize your experience of church may fall uh, far short of the beautiful community pictured here uh, in chapter 4. God's not okay with that. Yes, he, he judges Ananias and Sapphira in an especially uh, powerful and dramatic way. Uh, he shows us what the penalty for sin truly is. And it becomes a warning to all the people to fear God, to approach him with awe and with reverence. We can't take God for granted. We can't deceive him or, or use him for our own ends. And nor can we use his community, his, his people for our own ends. And so it's a warning to us too. Not because God will necessarily strike us down straight away. In most cases, God kindly holds back his wrath. He's merciful to us. He doesn't judge us straight away like this. That's why it feels so, so alien. But that doesn't mean that he thinks our sin is okay. We need to take the warning of this passage to heart. Will we humble ourselves before God? Will we acknowledge our sin before Him? Part of the reason we have a moment for confession in our service each week is to remind us not to try and deceive God. It's a moment each week to be honest, to be real with God. Are you trying to deceive others? Well, God sees your heart. And this moment of confession each week is your moment to come clean with him. We also receive good news in that moment. Straight after we confess our sins during the service, we have words of assurance. Because God isn't simply saving up his anger for later against us. If we genuinely say sorry to God and ask Jesus' forgiveness, then God isn't angry with us he won't kill us for our sin someone dies for our sin but it's not us because jesus died instead jesus took the penalty he faced the the anger of god on the cross and turned it away so that we will not face it ananias and sapphira faced god's judgment for their own sin Jesus was innocent. 
and yet he faced God's judgment for our sin. Because of his death, we can say sorry to God and be forgiven and not be afraid of God's judgment. Because Jesus dies, we can join God's beautiful community. We can be loved and known and cared for by God and receive all the good things that he gives because Jesus has died for us. In a few minutes, we're going to share the Lord's Supper together as a church family. It's, it's a symbol of Jesus dying for us, his body and his blood. It's also a symbol of being part of God's community. As we all eat and drink and share this meal together. So in a moment, we're going to sing to praise God. After that, we'll pray. And then we confess our sins. We say sorry to God. So that we're not pretending or lying as we come to share in this community meal. It's a moment for openness, for vulnerability. It's a moment to help us to be more open and vulnerable with each other. And then we remember his grace for us. Jesus died for us. We're forgiven and free, safe with him. That's, that's the message as we eat that bread and drink this cup. Jesus' death, his body and blood are for you. So friends, let's stand uh, and sing as we reflect on what we've read and, and perhaps still the questions we might have. Uh, our next song is, My Worth is Not in What I Own.